From New York, this is Democracy Now! There was nowhere to hide, so they huddled together. They died in two piles on top of each other in that second classroom. Two teachers trying to shield their kids and safeguard them. One teacher dead, one barely living. We've got to learn from what happened in Uvalde, Texas. It's my hope that at least this report tells the entire world that we need to have some real change. Failure. That's what the Justice Department called the police response to the 2022 Uvalde school massacre that left 19 children and two teachers dead. We'll go to Texas to speak with State Senator Roland Gutierrez about the report and about how Texas Governor Abbott is defying a Biden administration's cease and desist order to dismantle its barrier on the Mexican border after a mother and her two children died in the Rio Grande. Then, just out of prison for refusing his mandatory military service in Israel and headed back to prison, we'll speak with the first Israeli conscientious objector since the Gaza assault began over three months ago. There's actually a whole system, system of violence, um, of pulling people into the army and making them work for the occupation and for oppressing Palestinians. And as Palestinian casualties in Gaza soar, with more than 10,000 children dead, nearly 25,000 people overall killed, we'll speak with an emergency medical doctor just returned from Gaza about the catastrophic situation on the ground. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Mexico and Chile have requested the International Criminal Court investigate Israel for committing war crimes against civilians in Gaza as outrage grows over Israel's 15-week assault on the besieged territory, which has killed nearly 25,000 Palestinians, over 10,000 of them children. On Thursday, the European Union Parliament passed a resolution calling for a Gaza ceasefire and the condition that all hostages be released and Hamas dismantled. This comes as Gaza enters its eighth day under a near-complete communications blackout, the longest blackout to date. Israel's continuing to attack areas across the Gaza Strip. This is a Palestinian mother in Khan Yunus after learning her son had been killed in an Israeli strike. I'm hurting like a burning blaze. I told my husband, let's pray for Abdullah. He will come back. But it was my last goodbye for him. May God have mercy on his soul. They took my heart from me. I was waiting for my son, but he didn't come back. I hadn't slept for three nights praying for him. They told me he's in the European hospital, and I was praying that it wouldn't be true. In news from Israel, police have arrested seven people after they blocked a major highway in Tel Aviv during a protest calling for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to reach an agreement that would secure the release of the remaining 132 hostages held in Gaza. Meanwhile, Netanyahu has publicly rejected calls by the Biden administration for the future establishment of a Palestinian state. He called for Israel to be in control of the region from the river to the sea, from Jordan River to the Mediterranean. 
Therefore, I clarify that in any arrangement in the foreseeable future, with an accord or without an accord, the State of Israel must have security control over the entire territory west of the Jordan River. That's a necessary condition. It clashes with the principle of sovereignty. What can you do? Many commentators noted Netanyahu was essentially calling for Israel to control the land from the river to the sea, a phrase many Palestinian supporters have been denounced for using, even when calling for the formation of a single state where everyone has equal rights. The United States has bombed Yemen for the fifth time over the past week. On Thursday, President Biden acknowledged the U.S. strikes, which were conducted without congressional authorization, have failed to stop Houthi forces from Yemen from attacking ships in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. Hours after the latest U.S. airstrike, Houthi forces attacked a U.S.-owned chemical tanker in the Gulf of Aden. The Houthis have vowed to keep targeting ships until Israel stops attacking Gaza. The U.S. House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill Thursday to avert a partial government shutdown ahead of today's night midnight deadline. The measure extends funding for some federal agencies and programs, as well as the Pentagon, through early March. At the 11th hour, the far-right Freedom Caucus unsuccessfully attempted to add border crackdown measures to the House bill. The hardline lawmakers vowed to retaliate against House Speaker Mike Johnson by thwarting upcoming legislative action. The Justice Department pointed to a series of cascading failures in the response to the 2022 school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, which killed 19 children and two teachers. Hundreds of law enforcement officers stood by, 377 to be exact, as the massacre unfolded for 77 minutes. As he revealed the findings of his agency's investigation, Attorney General Merrick Garland said lives would have been saved had officials followed standard protocol. Families of the victims spoke after the release of the 600-page report. This is Kimberly Matarubio, who lost her 10-year-old daughter, Lexi. I hope that the failures end today and the local officials do what wasn't done that day do right by the victims and survivors of Rob Elementary, terminations, criminal prosecutions. And our state and federal government enact sensible gun laws because Rob Elementary began the day an 18-year-old wasn't allowed to purchase an AR-15. Along with other grieving family members, Kimberly Matarubio founded the gun control advocacy group Lives Robbed. The school where everyone was killed was the Robb Elementary School. We'll have more on Uvalde after headlines. Amidst multiple legal woes, Donald Trump posted an all-caps message to his Truth Social platform claiming, quote, a president of the United States must have full immunity, even for events that, quote, cross the line. The post reignited fear of an authoritarian crackdown on democracy if Trump is reelected. The ex-president ended his rant by writing, God bless the Supreme Court. Trump appointed three of the nine sitting justices on the right-wing majority court, which is likely to rule on Trump's eligibility to appear on the 2024 ballot, as well as whether he can be shielded from prosecution. Ruth Ben-Ghiat 
an NYU professor and expert on authoritarianism, said, quote, Trump is telling Americans very clearly that he will be jailing and killing Americans. Anyone who votes for him is complicit with these future crimes, unquote. In Haiti, a neighborhood in the capital, Port-au-Prince, has been under siege for at least four days in an ongoing attack by gang members. The sound of automatic weapons echoed through the streets of Salino, while many community members remained trapped inside their homes behind flaming barricades. I'm on the street because of armed gangs. They took my house. I was sheltering in another neighborhood, but they invaded it, too. I'm in the street now. I don't know where to go. Violence in Haiti has been escalating for months under interim Prime Minister Ariel Henry, who's backed by the United States, forcing thousands to flee. Henry became the de facto ruler following the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse in 2021. In Iran, authorities have sentenced Nobel Peace Prize laureate Nargis Mohammadi to an additional 15 months in prison, accusing the human rights leader of spreading propaganda while behind bars. Her family says this is Mohammadi's fifth criminal conviction since 2021. She's been in and out of prison for the last two decades over her activism. In California, United staff of the Los Angeles Times are holding a one-day multi-city walkout today to protest massive planned job cuts. It's the first-ever newsroom work stoppage in the history of the L.A. Times. Over 100 journalists, or about 20 percent of the newsroom, are reportedly at risk of losing their jobs. This comes less than a year after the paper cut 74 newsroom jobs. The L.A. Times is owned by the billionaire Patrick Soon-Shiang. A Mississippi poultry plant faces over $200,000 in fines for the death of a teenage worker who was killed last year after being pulled into a chicken deboning machine. The Department of Labor cited 17 violations against the Marjack poultry plant. The death of 16-year-old Devon Pettis was the second fatality recorded at the factory in just over two years. The teen was from Guatemala. At least 40 people have died across nine states over the past week amidst widespread winter storms and record wind chills. Tennessee was, has seen the highest death toll, with 14 fatalities. More snow and freezing temperatures are expected today from the Midwest to the East Coast. And the Senate held its first-ever hearing on long COVID amidst a winter surge in COVID infections. Patients and health experts appealed for more funding and research into the condition, as well as proper insurance coverage, while detailing its debilitating effects, which can include extreme fatigue, chronic pain, and what's often described as brain fog. This is long COVID researcher Dr. Ziad Al-Ali. Long COVID affects at least 20 million Americans. It affects people across the lifespan. We have kids with long COVID. We have people who are 100 years old with long COVID. It affects people across the lifespan and across demographic groups. The burden of long COVID, the burden of disease and disability from long COVID, when you measure it, is on par with the burden of cancer and heart disease. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Texas. It was May 24th, 2022, when an 18-year-old gunman armed with an AR-15 rifle 
shot dead 19 fourth graders and two teachers at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, as nearly 400 law enforcement officers who descended on the school took 77 minutes to confront and kill him. Now the Justice Department has issued a scathing 600-page review of the massacre. The long-awaited report details a series of, quote, cascading failures, starting with a haphazard initial response in which officers failed to quickly establish a command post and did not immediately treat the attack as an active shooter situation. Attorney General Merrick Garland released the report Thursday at a news conference in Uvalde. The chaos and confusion that defined the law enforcement response while the shooter remained a threat also defined the aftermath of the shooting. For example, surviving victims, some with bullet wounds and other injuries, were put on buses without being brought to the attention of medics. Some families were told that their family members had survived when they had not. And victims, families, and community members struggled to receive timely and accurate information about what had occurred at Robb Elementary. Parents of the Robb Elementary School mass shooting victims gathered Thursday to respond to the DOJ report. This is Kimberly Rubio, the mother of Lexi, one of the 19 children killed. I hope that the failures end today and the local officials do what wasn't done that day, do right by the victims and survivors of Robb Elementary, terminations, criminal prosecutions. And our state and federal government enact sensible gun laws because Robb Elementary began the day an 18-year-old was allowed to purchase an AR-15. Also at Thursday's news conference in Uvalde was the attorney Josh Koskoff. He represents the Robb Elementary victims' families. How did this 18-year-old kid even know enough to know how to uh, equip himself in this way? What happened? What are the means by which gun companies are marketing these weapons to our children? How are they reaching them? Where's the, where's the role of marketing and the gun companies in this report? There's no fault or investigation whatsoever. Just three weeks into this year, there have already been at least two school shootings in the United States. For more, we're joined by Democratic Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, whose district includes Uvalde. He's running for U.S. Senate for the seat currently held by Republican Ted Cruz. State Senator Gutierrez, welcome back to Democracy Now! We spoke to you repeatedly after the massacre. Can you respond to the report and be very specific about what happened inside and the fact that, what was it, 377 law enforcement, police, um, uh, troopers, etc., stood by for 77 minutes as the children inside desperately called police, the children acting like adults and the adults like children? Yes. Uh, Amy, first off, thank you uh, for having me on your show. I think it's important that people like yourself, people in the media, continue to tell this story in a real way and to begin to 
shed light and continue to shed light on this issue. What happened on May 24th was the worst law enforcement response to a school shooting in our nation's history. Let's be very clear. The police on that day, they all failed. Not just the district police chief, not just the local sheriff, not just the acting uh, chief of police, but the Department of Public Safety failed. 96 officers of Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star were on the scene. As they show up to all scenes in rural Texas, and not one of those officers, including his high-level command officers, took control of that scene. Not one of them said, we need to do something to stop this madness. We need to coordinate uh, a command center. That never happened. Not before, during, or after this event. The as, as the Attorney General suggested yesterday, it's just this cascading folly of errors or this cascading failure. It was everything that could have happened and everything that could have gone wrong happened. From radios that didn't work to um, just complete chaos and complete lack of leadership and management. But the biggest thing that occurred was something that I had to see for myself as I viewed over 400 hours of body cam footage. I needed to see why in the world this failure occurred. And amidst all of that carnage and all of the blood and all of the gore and all of those poor children that had passed on, the same refrain from cops over and over and over. He's got an AR-15 in there. There's an AR-15. He's got an assault rifle. Not one cop, not one DPS trooper, not one sheriff. Over and over and over, you would hear that one simple refrain. Cumulating in the last, one of the last officers to suggest that. He said, I don't want to die today. Specifically, he said, I don't want to get clapped out today. The children certainly were more brave than the, than the police. Even though I've seen all of this, and even though all of this is, for me, now 20 months in the making, even yesterday I learned something new that I had not seen on my body cam footage. The fact that one officer yelled into that room, if there's anybody in there, let us know. The child cried out, said, I'm in here. The gunman went back into that room. Four shots were fired. And that child was killed. What occurred on that day is something that we should all continue to talk about because these incidences don't happen in a vacuum. They don't happen in 12 minutes, as is the national average. The fact is most do, and most do get resolved in those 12 minutes. That's not what happened here in Uvalde on that day. What happened was extreme failure. What happened was cowardice. What was happened was that cops knew that this guy had a gun that they were afraid of. And that is why policymakers in the state of Texas and in the United States need to do something about this particular gun. Because the damage it makes and the ease by which it kills is astounding.
and profound, and we must stop it. We need an assault weapons ban in this country once and for all. State Senator Gutierrez, you have described the children and, you know, media doesn't show dead children with um, their faces blown off. And I really hate to say this, but unless we're very direct and graphic about what an AR-15 does, people can continue um, to say, you know, one weapon or another, whatever, it's the person, not the weapon. Tell us what an AR-15 does. Oh, it's quite different, Amy. It's quite different. In the first barrage, as the gunman enters in, uh, when you're looking at it, and I think the public has seen this image, this video footage of him going into the classroom, and then you don't see him anymore, but you hear close to one over 100 rounds just go off in a span of a minute and a minute plus. He's going into the first room. He kills every child in that first room. No survivors. Leaves only the teacher who he thinks is dead. That teacher was alive and, and, and has, has survived this event. Goes into the next adjacent room and just sprays that room. Those kids died like we trained them to die. And it sounds horrible. But these kids have grown up with a different kind of anxiety than you and I did when we were growing up. For me, we had fire drills at school. There were no active shooter drills. And for some some people that are older, they might remember the old, old nuclear bomb drill. You'd get under your desk. These children are, grow up with a very specific set of instructions that they practice month after month after month. Shut the lights off. Close the curtains or the blinds. Go in the closet if there is one. And if there isn't, huddle together as best you can. In that second classroom, there's two stacks of two piles of kids. Teacher draped over each one trying to save their children, trying to shield them from all of this madness. One teacher dead, one barely living. Most of the kids in that classroom dead. As they go into the classroom, and they take down the gunman, you immediately see the, the faulty trauma care. And I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a, I don't know about how you treat people. But you see police and law enforcement officials dragging dead bodies out by their limbs. A little girl comes out. I remember my general counsel telling me, you need to hold on when you see this image because she's going to be dragged out and she's not going to have a face. This little girl was dragged out by this one uh, this one Texas trooper. And indeed, her face was gone. And it, the only, I cannot think of a word to explain what that looks like other than some kind of dysmorphia. It's just, it's just, it doesn't look like a face anymore. It's just blood and bone and deep red blood and carnage like you cannot believe. The worst movie you've ever seen in your life, multiply, horror movie, multiplied by a thousand. The whole classroom full of blood, full of smoke. This little girl, just completely gone. There is a surviving young boy. I won't mention his name. His parents are friends of mine. 
And that little boy talks about his girlfriend. He told this story to his parents, told this story to his therapist. A little nine-year-old girl sitting in the de- desk next to him. All he can remember, and this boy was shot as well, he survived. And all he can remember was lying on the ground, looking at his, at his friend. And all he can remember is teeth all over that floor. That little girl, it's just, that little boy will live with that memory for the rest of his life. Just like Glory Torres will live with her memory, and she's been on in different news networks talking about her story. Just like Maya Cerillo will recount having to cover herself in blood to let the shooter know that she was dead. The blood of her best friend. We're just lost on this issue. State Senator, I want to ask you, you have introduced 21 state Senate bills seeking changes in gun laws, including universal background checks and red flag warnings. None passed last year in Texas. Um, And yet you have, for example, Wayne LaPierre on trial for corruption, steps down as head of the NRA. He famously said the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. The NRA, um, at its weakest point ever, how is it possible that an assault weapons ban isn't something that is embraced fully by Democrats, not to mention many Republicans? Well, Amy, I mean, the fact is, you know, you have too many cowardly politicians, and certainly the Republicans on the other side of the aisle, they're all cowards on this issue, and Democrats as well. There's a few out there that refuse to say this, and they need to say this. We need an assault weapons ban in this country. Look, Amy, I have guns, uh, a lot of them. I don't need an AR-15. I've fired them. It's the most powerful gun I've ever fired. It fires three times the speed of my 9 millimeter. When you put a certain round of ammunition in there, it's just complete death and destruction. Uh, and I saw it all. And I think, and I say cowardly for this reason. I remember sitting in the lieutenant governor's office. It was very raw and very early for me. Maybe as soon as the session started, I said, look, Dan, you've got to be able to do something on this issue. You've got to be able to just raise the age limit. After an hour of sitting there and him telling me that there's nothing that they could do, I recounted a story to him about this little girl, but the same story I just told you about her having dragged out no face to speak of and the horror of it all. Back then, it was very raw. I mean, quite honestly, I couldn't keep it together. At the end of that meeting, he says, Roland, do you know there's a reason we don't look at the videos? This is the second most powerful man in Texas. I promise you this, Amy, Ted Cruz and others like him, They have not seen the videos, the death, the destruction, and the finality of a little child's life full of hope, waiting simply for school to come to an end, just for the summer to begin. And all that, in an instant, their life is over, and all of those hopes are gone. These politicians are cowards on this issue. They're cowards because they haven't looked at what they need to see, the videos and the footage that I've seen and the footage all over this country because this story repeats itself 
week after week after week. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, we only have a few minutes, but I want to ask you about another topic, the showdown on the border. This week, Texas defied a Biden administration cease and desist order to dismantle its border barrier near the city of Eagle Pass after it sent troopers to take over a two-and-a-half-mile stretch and install fencing gates and razor wire. Um, this coming— after a mother and her two children drowned in the Rio Grande last Friday near Eagle Pass, when Border Patrol agents were denied access to the area by state officials acting under orders from Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott. This is Abbott speaking to right-wing radio host Dana Lausch about how Texas is conducting border enforcement. We are deploying every tool and strategy that we possibly can. The only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. Can you respond to what happened? We're talking about these 19 kids who died in Uvalde. This is a mom and her eight year old and 10 year old who drowned in, in the river, in the Rio Grande River. No, Amy, you're absolutely right. And, and and for this governor in Texas to understand, it, it would be murder because it is murder. And what they've done and what happened last week is also a crime. It's called failure to stop and render aid at a minimum uh, and possibly negligent homicide at a maximum. But they are not the only ones. Day after day after day, people are drowning because of the obstacles that this man put in the river. Let's be clear. He put a thousand miles, a thousand yards of buoy in the river. The fact is, that thousand feet, sorry, of buoy was put in the shallow part of this area that this governor has set up as his little theater. As his, as his, as, as, it's the only, by the way, it's the only city with this kind of razor wire, with these kinds of barriers. They put it in the shallow part of the river, making migrants go into the deeper parts, putting them into the deep water where hundreds of them have drowned. What this man has done, the cruelty they've created, is unbelievable. And it is a theatrical show that is disgusting and is leading the deaths of people that are simply looking for a dream, simply looking for opportunity because they're hungry. Because they're hungry. We need comprehensive immigration reform. It's the only solution. No obstacle, no barrier is going to fix this problem. We need comprehensive immigration reform once and for all in this country. And that is the job of a failed Congress who will not act. I want to thank you for being with us. And I also want to say that interview with Greg Abbott done by Dana Loesch, the radio and TV host. Uh, she's the former spokesperson for the NRA. Democratic Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, whose district includes Uvalde, recently announced he's running against Republican Senator Ted Cruz for the U.S. Senate. Next up, just out of prison for refusing his mandatory military service in Israel, we speak with the first Israeli conscientious objector since the Gaza assault began over three months ago. Stay with us. Si una noche no vuelvo a tus brazos Y se funde mi luna y mi sol Si mi voz ya no va Pongas candado a tu pecho, 
ni me prendas velitas de vaso. Regala mis libros mi ausencia, que la vida es futuro de un rato. Y prende un cigarrillo y apaga los recuerdos y no escuches la risa del dolor. Prohibido Llorar, Forbidden to Cry, by Vivir Quintana. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. It, Israel is continuing its attacks across the Gaza Strip, from the north to the south, as the number of Palestinian casualties continues to soar. Over the last 24 hours, at least 142 Palestinians were killed in Gaza, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Nearly 25,000 Palestinians have been killed over the past three months, 10,000 of them children. Thousands of others missing under the rubble, presumed dead, making Israel's assault one of the deadliest, most destructive military campaigns in recent history. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has again rejected calls to scale back Israel's military assault on Gaza or take steps to towards the establishment of a Palestinian state. In a nationally broadcast news conference, Netanyahu vowed to press ahead with the offensive until what he called a decisive victory over Hamas. As Netanyahu vows to continue Israel's assault on Gaza, we turn now to the first Israeli to refuse mandatory military service since Israel's offensive began over three months ago. Tal Mitnick is an 18-year-old conscientious objector in Israel. Last month, he announced he would refuse military service, saying, quote, I refuse to take part in a war of revenge. He was sentenced to 30 days in a military prison, was just released yesterday morning. Tal Mitnick is joining us now from a studio in Tel Aviv. Tal, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about why you are refusing? Thank you for having me on. Um, I am refusing because, like I said, I refuse to take part in this revenge war. I'm refusing because I want to make a statement about how we need to uh, conduct ourselves in this land. I feel like there's too much violence here. There is too much revenge and talk about this side or that side. And we need to talk about how we need to go forward in a future of coexistence where both Israelis and Palestinians can live together and live with security and peace. So talk about what exactly this means. How did you make this known? Talk about where you served time in prison. And is this just a brief period of days before you're sent back to prison? Yes. I got sentenced for 30 days for my first sentencing, and I got another draft order for Monday morning, which means I have to get drafted on Monday morning, where I will go and refuse service once again and probably get sentenced again. And this will happen over and over until someone gives up, until the army gives me an exemption. So... Talk about the response of your friends, your family. And I was also just wondering, you're an Israeli, but you have an American accent. Are you American as well? My parents immigrated from, Amer from the U.S., um, and we spoke English at home, but 
I'm Israeli and American. Yes. Hmm. So t- um, the, my, the friends and family response. Yeah, yes. Go ahead. My friends and family response was um, thankfully mostly um, very understanding because people that know me and people that talk to me know that I come from a, a good place of nonviolence um, and and most and and coexistence. I feel like um, the people that got to talk to me also inside military prison, a lot of them. Um, ben Gvir supporters, um, they support killing all Arabs. They, when they got to know me before they knew my political opinions, they understood. They, got, they understood that there are people that don't support this. Um, sorry, I can hear myself twice. I'm if you can, uh, if you can possibly blank that out, because uh, we're not sure how to fix that right now. But um, just continue to talk, because we don't hear you twice, but we do hear you yes. very clearly. Can you talk about your time? Okay, yeah. So the f- in prison, and where are no, you no, being ahead. held? Yeah. So I'm being held in a military prison, where um, other soldiers that have committed crimes inside the military and got sentenced um, to military prison are also being held. Um, it's um, not a fun experience. But it's also not the worst experience imaginable. It's not like the experience that Palestinian prisoners are being um, held under um, in the West Bank or inside Israel. Um, yeah, it's it's very strict timing, very strict about what you're allowed to do and when. Um, but this is something that I'm willing to do um, to make an impact. I'm wondering if you feel the climate is changing among Israelis. And also, um, what Israelis see about what's happening in Gaza? I mean, we just reported we're talking about now close to 25,000 Palestinians killed, over 10,000 children, over 7,000 women, many uh, believed to be dead in the rubble. We don't even know that count. Um, If you watch something like Al Jazeera or you watch other media, since there are only uh, Palestinian journalists there on the ground— You see endless pictures of carnage, of horror, of babies being pulled out of the rubble, dead or alive. Um, What do you see on Israeli TV? We're talking about people who are just 15 minutes away from Gaza. So actually, inside prison, the only source of uh, news that we got was one newspaper called Israel Ayom. Um, and every day on the newspaper, there will be pictures of uh, the soldiers that died. And I remember feeling like I, there, it, I, I feel sad, very sad for the soldiers and the families that have to um, take this great burden of, um, of losing someone close to them. But I know that while seeing soldiers dying, I know that this means that there are much more um, Palestinian civilians dying, which we don't see in the newspaper. Who else are you serving time with in that prison? Who else is there? Sadly, a lot of the other people there uh, don't, um, they they are deserters, which means that they serve time in the military, and then at some point, for some reason, um, they went back home and did did not come back. 
Most of these people desert because of socioeconomic reasons. If it's having to take care of their siblings or um, or go work uh, for their family, and when they come back and turn themselves in, we're now seeing a very heavy sentencing of those deserters as a part of the fascist persecution um, and the fog of war. People that are that went to work for three months to feed their family are now being sentenced to half a year in military prison. Can you talk about the overall anti-war movement, if there is one in Israel? I mean, there were massive protests, up to a million people in the streets, which is massive for Israel, around the uh, Netanyahu wanting to gut the power of the judiciary. Of course, he is uh, under um, charges himself, and that would help him remain out of prison. Um, but at that point, many reservists said they would not serve in the military. Military. Everything changed after October 7th, Hamas attack on southern Israel. Um, if you can talk about why that did not change you, and how large is the anti-war movement, and do you feel it's growing? I feel like after the horrendous attack of October 7th against Israeli civilians, there was a very important conception that was broken in Israeli society. Um, the, the conception that we can live with the siege and with the occupation and not feel it. Now, we, when that conception is broken, we have a vacuum. Um, and there are two ideas that are trying to pull people. One idea that the right is offering, which is, uh, we can't live with occupation, we can't live with siege, this means we need to wipe all of them out. And the other idea, the moderate one, the one that makes sense, is that we can't live with occupation, we can't live with siege, we need to step forward for peace. Inside military prison, I got asked a lot, what do you think, we should just stop the war and put our hands up and not do anything? And I went out and said, no, we need to keep fighting. We need to keep fighting for a just future. We need to stop the physical fighting between us, and we need to very, very aggressively push for a better future. I'm wondering your response to... Um Prime Minister Netanyahu once again saying, from the river to the sea. When Palestinian advocates and their allies talk about from the river to the sea, the response of the Israeli government um, has been, that means they're for the genocide of Jews, because they don't want Jews to be there, the government says. Now you have Netanyahu saying, not that this hasn't been said before um, by Likud, but from the river to the sea— Israel must control. Your response to that, Tal. And if you can talk about the word occupation, because in the U.S. media also, there is rarely that word used that Israel occupies the West Bank and Gaza. The term from the river to the sea um, is very controversial inside of Israel. And I feel like some people that use it there are people that use it that mean the genocide of Jews inside Israel. But the, just the term itself, I feel like, does not mean a genocide of Jews. It means freedom for all Palestinians from the river to the sea. When Benjamin Netanyahu uses this term, it does not mean freedom for all from the river to the sea. It means oppression of Palestinians, and it means Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. 
Finally, Tal, I'm wondering your response uh, to uh, Jews around the world, particularly here in the United States, like Jewish Voice for Peace, these massive protests that have been held from Grand Central Station uh, to shutting down the bridges and the tunnels from New York to um, highways in California, saying, we want a ceasefire now. What how do you respond to that and your final message to other 18-year-old Israelis? These protests are amazing. Um, the, these organizations like Jewish Voices for Peace and If Not Now um, do incredible work. Um, and I, I support the continuation of these protests um, all around the world. Um, and a message to other people my age, other kids, I feel like it's important to know that we, we have a voice. I used to think that, um, that, that talking to people is all we can do, but we can change, um, and people want to hear what we have to say because we're the future. And, and this is, yeah, we're the future, and, and we can change. And finally, might you spend months, more than a year, in jail? If you keep saying no to military service, since Netanyahu says this will go on for more than a year? Because there's no policy set for uh, jailing uh, conscientious objectors, I don't really know how much time I'll spend in prison, but it could be months. Tal Metnik, 18-year-old Israeli activist known as a refusenik. He's refused mandatory military service in the Israeli army, the first conscientious objector in Israel since the Israeli assault on Gaza began over 100 days ago. He's just sentenced to 30 days in prison, which he served for refusing to enlist, was released a few days ago, then will be called up again and says he will refuse again. Coming up next, we talk to a doctor who just came out of Gaza. Stay with us. Can't you hear the urgent call of Palestine? Can't you hear the urgent call of Palestine? Palestine. Tormented, tortured, bruised and battered and all her sons and daughters scattered. Can't you hear the sweet, sad voice of Palestine? Can't you hear the sweet, sad voice of Palestine? Palestine. She whispers above the roars of the guns, beckoning to Urgent Call of Palestine by Zeneb Shath. The Palestinian singer recorded this more than half a century ago. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli forces are pushing further into southern Gaza with airstrikes and ground troops attacking areas that Israel had previously told Palestinians to flee to as safe zones. 
Over the past few days, Israel's bombed areas close to Nasser Hospital, the largest remaining semi-functioning health facility in Gaza, located in the southern city of Khan Yunus. Gaza only has 16 partially functioning health facilities remaining before Israel's assault. Gaza had 36 hospitals. The hospitals that are still working are operating far beyond their capacity, have been turned into makeshift refugee camps to house the displaced and makeshift morgues, with health officials describing the situation as catastrophic. The health ministry estimates that over 60,000 people have been wounded in Gaza, with hundreds more casualties every day. The casualty count at this point is nearing 25,000, more than 10,000 of them children. For more, we're joined by Dr. James Smith, an emergency medical doctor who just returned from Gaza earlier this month, where he worked alongside Palestinian healthcare workers to treat patients at Al-Aqsa Hospital, located in Dera Abala, in the middle of the Gaza Strip. Dr. James was in Gaza with the organization Medical Aid for Palestinians. He's joining us now from London. Dr. James, welcome to Democracy Now! Describe what you saw, what you confronted, the work you were doing, what's happening at Al-Aqsa Hospital. Hi, Amy. So, yes, as, as you say, I was working with uh, a team of—there were 10 of us. Uh, myself, I was with uh, the organization Medical Aid for Palestinians. We were accompanied by colleagues from the International Rescue Committee. And very importantly, we were—it's it, it, important to really reiterate that we were working uh, with, with, with our Palestinian uh, colleagues, so doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals at Al-Aqsa—sorry, at, at, uh, Al at uh, Al-Aqsa Hospital. Uh, Al-Aqsa is, is a hospital based in the middle area of Gaza, so south of, of Gaza City and north of Khan Yunus. Uh, myself, I was working in the emergency room, so we would uh, position ourselves in the ER every morning um, and really, uh, at that point, wait to see um, what, what the day would bring. Every single day, uh, without exception, there were multiple mass casualty incidents at the hospital. Uh, so that's several patients presenting at a time uh, with uh, traumatic injuries of, of varying severity. Those patients would require stabilization and then often uh, transfer through to the operating room for surgical intervention. Some patients would require palliative care if we were able to provide some form of, of palliative care. Um, and with, in addition to, to many, many trauma patients, and by many I mean several hundred over the time that we were working at Alexa, um, we were also treating patients presenting with complex medical problems, uh, so people that had suffered uh, heart attacks, for example, uh, had suffered from strokes, um, people whose uh, hypertension or diabetes uh, management had, had, uh, had been negatively impacted, uh, usually through a lack of access to their, their usual medication uh, or because they hadn't been able to see their, their usual doctor for several months. Um, and then, furthermore, we were also seeing an even greater number of people with effectively primary healthcare level problems. So the, the entirety of the primary healthcare or, or community care system in Gaza has, has completely collapsed. In fact, the entire healthcare system, uh, the Ministry of Health has, has, has already announced several months ago, has, has completely collapsed. 
but that meant that anyone presenting with uh, so-called well, more minor complaints, coughs, colds, diarrheal illnesses, they were all also presenting to the emergency room to be seen by the, the doctors and nurses uh, there. Can you talk about treating children, Dr. James? Sure. So, as you've mentioned, uh, a significant proportion of the people that have been killed since the start of this escalation are children. We certainly saw every mass casualty incident um, in the emergency room. There were uh, several children also present. Uh, I remember very vividly some of the most traumatic injuries uh, inflicted upon people were inflicted upon children, uh, and they would include... Uh, open chest wounds, open abdominal wounds, traumatic amputations, um, severe full thickness burns to a substantial proportion of the body area. Um, really some of the most horrific traumatic injuries that, that I have ever seen. We're actually showing images for a TV audience of uh, Al-Aqsa Hospital and of the children um, and the adults uh, who have been wounded there. You know, it's really important to point out, if you're talking about a hospital in normal times uh, that has uh, repeatedly been attacked it would, and that's severely compromised in its functioning, but we're talking about this constant bombardment that where you have people coming in who have been um, severely wounded. Um, you have people taking refuge there. And is it both like a refugee camp and a morgue? So there were several thousand people that had sought supposed sanctuary within the hospital compound itself. And we've seen this in, in several other hospitals uh, across the Gaza Strip. Uh, there, there were reports, for example, of thousands of people sheltering in the Al-Shifa uh, compound before that was surrounded and, and raided by the, the Israeli occupation forces. Uh, the same was the case at, at Al-Aqsa. So there were people um, staying in makeshift tents in, in, in and around the hospital buildings, just up the, the, the main street adjacent to the hospital, um, a, a sort of a, a, another IDP camp, an in, internally displaced persons camp, had sort of formed uh, very organically on um, open land. Um, as the Israeli ground forces moved closer to the hospital and as the bombardment, the artillery and, and air bombardment intensified, Many of those, many thousands of those displaced people have displaced further south um, towards Rafa. Uh, and that also includes patients who were in the hospital at the time that, that we were working there. Many of them um, have also fled, along with um, many of the staff as well. I wanted to um, go to a clip, and it's really important to play these clips uh, right now. Gaza has experienced the longest communications blackout um, of this uh, Israeli attack for the last three months. I think it's something like seven days. So it's really hard to get information inside uh, this intense Israeli bombardment in the vicinity of Nasser Hospital, the main hospital in Khan Yunis, the largest remaining semi-functioning health facility in Gaza. And tanks and armored vehicles are on the main road leading to the area. On Wednesday, 
Tuesday, Democracy Now! reached Dr. Ahmed Mugrabi, who works in Nasser Hospital. He described the situation on the ground and the difficulty in getting out any messages. Uh, this is what he had to say. Thank you, sister, you're asking about us. Thank you for letting me speak out here. We don't have internet at all. I managed to get a very weak signal. I can't upload any of these videos. Yeah, 90% of people who, who are already evacuated at the hospital, they evacuated from the hospital. 90% of medical personnel evacuated from the hospital. And this is my little daughter, actually. She got head trauma yesterday. You know, hundreds of these evacuated people at the corridor, somebody pushed her and she fell on her head. Now I'm taking care about my this little girl. She needs medicine. She's not well. So I stay at the hospital now, but I want to evacuate. Situation is catastrophic, sister. Really, I'm very tired. I'm very tired. That's Dr. Ahmed Magrabi, and the image we've been showing as he spoke was Dr. Magrabi holding his own wounded daughter. Um, I'm wondering, Dr. James, if you can talk about the significance, the medical significance of a complete, almost complete telecommunications blackout in terms of ambulances being reached, people being able to communicate to get help. Absolutely. I mean, this this is it's a catastrophic development. As, as you've mentioned, Amy, this, I think, is the seventh time that the Israelis have suspended uh, access to, to telecommunications across almost the entirety of the Gaza Strip. Um, this is now day six or seven um, of, of a complete sort of telecommunications blackout. It makes it almost impossible to, to do anything. So people, for, in the first instance, people can't reach their families, their loved ones. They can't communicate with, with colleagues. They can't reassure family that they're okay. Or indeed, um, that relatives and, and friends can't inform um, family members and so on when somebody has been killed or, or injured. Um, there have been occasions where the emergency number um, has, has not been in use. Um, so, as, as you say, it's been difficult to, to call um, ambulances or mobilise ambulances to places where there has been a, an air or, or artillery strike. Uh, it makes it very difficult for health and humanitarian workers to to do to do their essential Dr. work Smith, so they can't coordinate we, with each other. We only have 10 seconds. What message do you have for the world just having come out of Gaza? 10 seconds. The, the violence needs to end immediately. Dr. James Smith, emergency medical doctor just back from Gaza, where he worked to treat patients at Al-Aqsa Hospital. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! has job openings. Check democracynow.org.